0: we've done windier Um, if you need to stand at any point and let the blood flow or even pace or something back there or I don't know jump up and down we won't mistake that as religious enthusiasm or uh, hysteria Uh, do what you got to do to try and keep warm If you have a Bible with you, I'll invite you to turn to Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Uh, one of the, the great things about verse-by-verse, uh, verse, preaching verse-by-verse verse through books of the Bible, uh, there's lots of them, but one of them is that uh, you don't have to look hard to determine your next text when it comes to preaching. You just you pick up where you left off and you're, you just have to determine how far you're going to go Uh, this next time around i've actually heard people call it lazy preaching for that very reason uh, which is just silly and uh a very bad take but um but when you finish a book and then you have to determine what's next um it's it's uh it's it's kind of difficult to decide there's kind of a whole world before you it's exciting and there's really not a bad option for picking a, a book of so many wonderful options to choose from. And so if you're familiar with the book of Ecclesiastes, um, it might seem like a peculiar choice uh, given our present historical moment. Since these are really, have been discouraging days in many different ways, uh, and, and the book of Ecclesiastes isn't one that you know, we think of as just screaming uh, encouragement to us. Uh, We've dealt with much added angst, uh, depression, distress at times over this past year, in addition to all of the usual difficulties and trials. And I think whatever you make of the the present circumstances, uh, however your thinking has developed over the past year, There's reason to be concerned about society and about its direction, and there's plenty of temptations towards despair. And so Ecclesiastes might seem like an odd choice, like kicking us maybe while we're down. Um, But I think ultimately, uh, and my hope is that it will have the opposite effect. One of the reasons why we tend toward despair uh, is that we, we typically, we, we tend to have wrong and misplaced expectations about what life should be like. Uh, we have been so blessed by the Lord in so many different ways to have, for the most part, health. Uh, we have abundance. We've been provided so, our needs and then some. We have had and enjoyed freedom to come and go as we please. We've enjoyed freedom to worship God and to act in accordance with our beliefs about God. We've had pleasures at our fingertips. We have lots of good food. We we don't just have food that we can survive, uh, we're able to be discriminating in the choice of foods that we eat. We have a huge selection of food we can, we can buy and, and, and pass over certain things. We, we have the luxury of being picky, even, some of us. We have all kinds of pleasures at our fingertips in addition to food. Uh, entertainments, and I'm talking obviously wholesome entertainments. Things like vacations, we, we've, many of us, I would imagine all of us have been on vacation, traveling places, and even if we've not gone far, many of us um, even have something called paid vacation, where, where we're actually paid to, to not go to work. Uh, some of you who own your own businesses um, laugh at that. <laughs> uh, that sounds nice, doesn't it? It is, it is really quite nice. And we can develop an expectation that this is the way it always ought to be in order for me to be satisfied. That maybe even God somehow owes me these things. And if I don't have them, if they're taken away some of these things I've come to enjoy, some of these luxuries even, then maybe I even have a right to be upset. And we become like Jonah. And the Lord asked him, do you do well to be angry for the plant and his response is yes i do well to be angry angry enough to die of course he's angry about a plant that he did not plant that god sprung up miraculously and then withered in the scorching heat now maybe we don't say it quite like jonah does i hope i hope not but things don't go as you expect Maybe as you even subtly demand, and you can certainly feel that kind of anger or that kind of frustration. Maybe even believing that you've been betrayed by God. Or, even when times are still good, we can grow fearful. Fearful at the thought of losing anything that we have come to love and appreciate such that we end up living in worry. Again, this can be another subtle way that we begin to expect or demand that things remain as they are, as they have been. And Ecclesiastes comes along and addresses these issues, forcing us to look at the world as it truly is in all of its frustrations, letdowns, sorrows, and even futility at times. That is, this book forces us to look at this world in its fallen condition. It forces us to deal with our finiteness in a way that is uncomfortable, I think, at times, And it forces us to remove any kind of sugarcoating that we've done, uh, trying to sugarcoat life's difficulties. And it forces us to face this all rather head-on. And this is not something that's easy to do. It can be emotionally uh, challenging. Because the things that are addressed in this book, they're not light and flippant. It doesn't come along and just say, oh, it's no big deal. Oh, there's are real difficulties, real pains that we will see explored in this book. And yet this book is not trying to be mean to you or to me. This is God's word. It's God's word to you. And if we would hear it, there is much wisdom to be gained As we live life in God's world that has been marred by sin, Uh, there is joy to be had in Ecclesiastes and freedom as well to be found here. And so today we're going to really introduce the book. We're going to look at the first three verses. And we're going to look at three things as we go through these verses. We're going to look at who, what, and why if you're like, you have to have all five W's. The the other two will be in there too, uh, if if you listen carefully. But we're going to look at who who is writing this book of Ecclesiastes, what is his central message, and why? Why in the world is he saying this to us? Okay, so let's begin by reading Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse 1. It says, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? So we want to begin by looking at who, who wrote this? Well, as the book opens, it tells us a little about the author, but it never does explicitly give us his name. Now, throughout the majority of church history, it has been understood that Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon. Uh, this includes even uh, Old Testament times, even before uh, Christ was, uh, walked the earth as the incarnate word. And I think this is how we ought to still understand this. Uh, for reasons I'll explain in a moment, that this is Solomon who's writing this book. But as it opens, it says, The words of the preacher... The author is identified as the preacher. Now, the best translation of that word preacher uh, is somewhat debated, but most English versions either say preacher or teacher. Uh, This is also the word from which we get the title Ecclesiastes. So, uh, Ecclesiastes, this book is written originally in Hebrew, of course. And the Hebrew word here, translated preacher, is the word Koholeth. And it means a speaker in an assembly. Now, when the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament was written, that is the the Septuagint, uh, they used the Greek word Ecclesiastes, which you recognize, sounds familiar. We've transliterated that into English to to get the name Ecclesiastes. So of this uh, Hebrew word, Philip Ryken says this in his commentary. He says, the verbal form of kohelet, this Hebrew word, refers to the gathering or assembly of a community of people, especially for the worship of God. So the noun, Kohelet, which is used here, is not so much a teacher in a classroom, but more like a pastor in a church. He is preaching wisdom to a gathering of the people of God. So the author comes out and states himself to be a preacher. He's the preacher. The verse then identifies the preacher as the son of David, who is king in Jerusalem. Now, this description certainly is very accurate and fitting if describing Solomon. But as I mentioned, there are a number of people who don't believe that Solomon did write Ecclesiastes. This should not be surprising. There's, uh, every book almost has its doubters about who wrote it. The summary of the argument against Solomon writing it is that first of all, uh, son of David doesn't have to be a literal son of David. I think we all understand that. Uh, so it could be any number of his descendants. It doesn't have to be a literal son. Uh, but maybe the most convincing argument for many is that the style of Hebrew isn't like anything that we can see from Solomon's era, from when Solomon would have lived. A book like Samuel, for example. And so they argue that its uniqueness puts it, you know, it's best to understand that as being a later book, written much later than the time of Solomon. However, on this point, many others have noted that the Hebrew style that we find in this book, Ecclesiastes, doesn't really match any period of Hebrew. There aren't really good parallels. So then the weight of the argument that it can't be Solomon because it doesn't really fit in that time period is, is hard to sustain. And, of course, there's reasons why it may not match other books that we have from Solomon's time in Hebrew. First of all, there's not a lot of them out there, uh, so we should be careful when someone's making that kind of an argument. But it's also a pretty unique book. In just the material it's covering, uh, if, if you were to write a book that's a, a narrative, story of something, and then you were to write a book that's more philosophical about life's issues and problems, I would suggest they would probably have different styles and look different, even though you're the exact same author. Additionally, there's much in Ecclesiastes that does fit Solomon very well. First of all, the title, uh, these first words, he's the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Uh, Quite literally, he was the son of David. Additionally, it's hard to imagine a later Israelite king who can make some of the claims that are made by the author in Ecclesiastes. For example, the author claims to have been wiser and wealthier than all who came before him in Jerusalem. So you see that in chapter 1, verse 16. And then a similar thing in chapter 2, verse 9. Of course, this very, very well fits Solomon and the description of Solomon. 2 Chronicles 9.22 says, King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. You think of the Lord blessing Solomon with wisdom. For someone to come after him and say, I've exceeded Solomon would be a bit of a bold claim. At the close of the book, chapter 12, verse eight, the preacher is said to have also taught people knowledge and written many Proverbs, which most certainly fits Solomon very well. Explicitly, uh, we see many of his Proverbs written in the book of Proverbs. And finally, The life journey, or as um, John MacArthur calls it, the moral odyssey that we find within this book, uh, does seem to fit well with the life of Solomon. So if this is written by Solomon, then it likely would have been uh, written near the end of his life when he is able to reflect on his various accomplishments and foolish pursuits. Some people point to the fact that we have no explicit record of Solomon's repentance anywhere in the scriptures. And they'll they'll use that to say to question that Solomon wrote this. Say, well, we don't we don't have evidence elsewhere that he ever repented. He seems to just go off into sin and error and not come back. However, I would submit that this very book may be his record of repentance. Additionally, if you think about the uh, historical narratives about Solomon's life that we do have in the Bible, which we see in Kings and in Chronicles, they tell an interesting story. If all we had was the book of Kings, then we would conclude that Solomon died in unbelief and basically in disgrace. But if all we had was the book of Chronicles, we wouldn't even know really that he wandered off into error and disgrace. And we've talked about that uh, in the past, but it's, it's been a while. But the reason for that is Kings and Chronicles are, are written for different purposes. right? When an author, even today, writes a book, they have a particular purpose in mind. Even a book that's history, a history book. And you have to pick and choose certain events and not others. Kings is written to the people of Israel in exile. Answering the question, why are we in exile? And so there's... They're paying close attention to everybody's sins and faults, including David, including Solomon, all the kings, and, and drawing attention to their errors. Chronicles is written, and you can, you can tell this by just looking at the end of these books, Chronicles is written uh, to the exiles who've returned to Jerusalem, and it seems to be trying to portray positive things about some of the kings, the positive aspects they, they can find, and, and to present uh, what life in the, in, in the land of, of Canaan ought to look like and present some positive cases of the king. So, for example, if you think of the wicked King Manasseh from Kings, there's, he's just straight evil, basically. Uh, nothing about, his, about repentance or anything. Well, we get to Chronicles, and his repentance is recorded. He did repent at the end of his life. And again, that seems to be the author pointing them to something good, even from the life of wicked King Manasseh. And again, those books don't claim to tell everything there is to tell about any of the kings. You know the common refrain, uh, as for the rest of the Acts of Solomon, are they not written in the book of blank? So the authors are aware. They're not trying to compile every single detail about all of these men, all of these kings. And so I think it is Solomon who's the preacher, and that this is his expression of repentance. Solomon is using this term preacher because, as one commentator says it, the use of this title indicates that the author is distancing himself from his role as absolute monarch, and he's taking on the mantle of the sage. So he's not uttering in Ecclesiastes some sort of uh, decree by the king. Uh, He's he's, he's coming in as a preacher. He's coming in as a wise man to teach. Just a final word before we leave this question of who wrote this. Uh, Let's remember that the greater son of David is the true word of God. The Lord Jesus, the true and great prophet, And even before he was the Word made flesh, he was the Word that was with God. And so as we hear the words of the preacher in Ecclesiastes, we are hearing the words of our Lord to us in this text. It is God delivering wisdom to his people. So this is the who. Now for the what. What is the preacher's central message? Well, it begins with the words, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Uh, J.I. Packer calls verse 2 the text of Solomon's sermon, which is then going to be followed by an exposition of that text and some application to the Lord's people. And so verse 2 then is understood as really the main idea of the book. Namely, that all is vanity. And this is what Solomon is going to develop and expand on and explain. Now, it's important we try to understand what is meant by this word that is here translated as vanity. We think of the word vanity, we maybe don't use it a whole lot, um, but sometimes use it to describe something that is futile or even uh, worthless. But every well, basically every commentary talks about the difficulty of translating this particular Hebrew word because it really has different nuances to it that are hard to capture with one English word. And the different nuances come out at different places in the book depending on the context. And so if you're looking at an ESV like I am, uh, they actually helpfully... Um, alert you to this fact by putting a footnote by the first occurrence of the word vanity uh, or, or vain every time it appears, the first time it appears on every page of the ESV every page, first page sorry, the first time it appears on every page in the book of Ecclesiastes it'll put this footnote at least it does in all the copies of the ESV I have and this is what it says in that footnote it says the Hebrew word hebel Translated vanity or vain refers concretely to a mist, vapor, or mere breath and metaphorically to something that is fleeting or elusive with different nuances depending on the context. So I think that's good. That's helpful. Uh, That's a a translation that's trying to help you better understand uh, the text that you're reading. And so this word, Hebrew word Hebel, means vapor or breath and exactly what Solomon means by calling things a vapor will depend on the context this is where taking one word like an know NIV, I, I believe has meaningless and, and applying that every single time will, will cause us confusion and even the word vanity I think will do the same thing It's just me. I'm not anybody, but I don't understand why they don't just say vapor or something like that, and then we would do the work of what does that mean in each context. But maybe they know something I don't. But everybody seems to draw attention to this this struggle. So when he when he talks about things and calls them vapors, the context is going to depend on is going to tell us what exactly he means by that as it does take on different nuances. So sometimes, Solomon is drawing attention to the fleeting, vapor-like, or transitory nature of life. Life itself is there one moment and then gone the next. Elsewhere, the Bible tells us that life is like a vapor, using this very word. Pleasure, likewise. It's there one minute and then gone. The next. That which is a vapor is elusive. Vapor is insubstantial. It lacks substance. It cannot be grabbed onto. It cannot be held. That which is fleeting or insubstantial is prone to frustrate or disappoint. Especially if we're trying to grab it. So Hevel can refer to that which is futile or vexing. Imagine, for example, gaining all kinds of knowledge and wisdom, more than those who've come before you, only to then have that very knowledge and wisdom leave you feeling frustrated and aggravated when you see all the folly and ignorance that persists all around you. This is exactly what he will tell us happened to him in Verse 18 of chapter 1. At the end of chapter 1. The word also describes that which is incomprehensible. This is a major theme throughout this book. That life's mysteries are ultimately out of reach for you and I. You seek answers to your why questions. And they are unobtainable often. They are like a vapor the end of chapter 8, he reflects in verse 17. Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much a man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. This search for understanding the whys and what's behind everything, it's ultimately beyond us. It's incomprehensible. It's like a vapor. In verse 3 of chapter 1, the question is raised, what does a man gain by all his toil at which he toils under the sun? Now this phrase, under the sun, is important uh, many people think that it is referring to life apart from God. That is, they think Ecclesiastes is teaching us that life apart from God is vaporous, but life with God is not. Certainly there are times during this book, uh, that this book that is recounting and reflecting upon uh, you know, this, uh, this moral odyssey, There are times then when it seems that the perspective of faith is lacking. But the book as a whole isn't describing a search for meaning that is apart from God. A number of places he's very aware of what he's doing is from God. He says in in chapter 1 verse 13, he talks about how he's seeking wisdom. He talks about seeking wisdom and understanding of all things as business from God. It's not something that's completely divorced. From God. Chapter 3 verse 10 is very similar. Much of this journey and examining of life is done with the knowledge of God's existence, that these things are from Him. This is His world. Additionally, uh, faith, a, a strong confident faith in the Lord, is, sometimes aggravates some of the issues that are raised in Ecclesiastes. For example, The righteous suffering while the evil man prospers. It's going to come up a few times. Chapter 7, verse 15 is one place. But to to see the true evils of a righteous man suffering and a wicked man prospering in his wickedness really requires faith to really grasp the evils of that. So I agree agree with uh, Benjamin Shaw, who who wrote a good commentary, who writes this. He says, Under the sun means the here and now, the life that we can access by our senses. It does not mean, as some seem to think, the world apart from God. Rather, it is just the world that we experience every day. So Solomon is describing your world. And he's telling you here at the opening that life under the sun is a vapor. It is insubstantial. It is fleeting. It is beyond your ability to fully grasp. And it is often very frustrating. And much at times can appear pointless. Solomon is going to force us to look at some things that we don't really want to see, some things that are painful to look at. It's kind of like if you do Holocaust studies, pictures are helpful and often said to be very important, to look at pictures, We we don't want to look at those pictures. Uh, We'd rather not hear them being described, we'd rather not see the troubling side of humanity and yet it is important and helpful to understand what went on, to see it, to look at it. Well, Solomon is going to force us to look at some of the troubling realities of life under the sun as we try to view it. And I would encourage you as we go through this book to give consideration to these things. To look honestly at these matters and to deal honestly with them. He's not a pessimist in this book. It seems like it at times. Some people take this book that way. But he is being realistic about these things. And it doesn't serve us to just pretend uh, that life is not as it is, as Ecclesiastes will present to us. And so to give these things honest consideration... And to examine your own life and expectations of what life should be like in light of what is here. So that's the what. He's preaching about the vapor like quality of, of life under the sun. And finally, and, and briefly, let's look at the why. Why is he preaching this to us? Why do this to us? Well, the answer to this not surprising, is going to come as we go through this book. And Solomon is not in a hurry to provide us with the answers. He's going to let us linger in some of these uncomfortable statements that he's going to make. And so we will see Solomon's own answers come as the book progresses. There are rays of light that shine in throughout the book. And then, of course, he concludes with some answers as well. Uh, but since we're going to cover this over the course of a, a few months, don't know exactly how long, uh, we're, we're going to come back to some of his answers. Uh, normally, the expectation would be you sit down and read this book right through and you get the whole thing all at once. Uh, and So we want to uh, make sure we're doing that. We don't want to just leave week after week uh, feeling the discomfort in what he says and given texts. So... Uh, so I want to say a few things about why he's writing this up front. If I had to summarize the purpose here, here it is. That Ecclesiastes teaches you that embracing the vapor-like nature of life in this world will help you to live your life well. Embracing what is taught here will help you to live Wisely. And this embrace of this vapor-like quality of life begins with accepting the reality of death. We, we live in a time when we've been pretty successful at avoiding death, at avoiding thoughts of death. We're fairly well insulated from it. So much I think of the, the lunacy of the last year is in part because we just don't know how to deal with death or the thought of possibly dying. We need to, to, to grapple with this fact. Solomon is not here again to just be morbid or sick, but it's an important part of, of living life is understanding how this all ends life is a vapor at some point you and I will die and accepting that understanding that will be of monumental aid to you for a number of reasons first of all it will cause you I trust to prepare for what comes after life under the Sun we live now with the knowledge, this is one of the conclusions that Solomon's going to give us, with the knowledge that God will bring all things into judgment. At the end of the book, chapter 11, verse 9, and and the very last verse of the book reminds us of these things. And so by revealing the frustration and toil of life under the sun, of life in a a sin-cursed world, The book of Ecclesiastes prepares us to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. It forces us to look beyond the here and now to find significance. And if we are going to die and then stand before God where everything is brought into judgment, if we are going to be able to withstand that day, then we as sinners will most certainly need forgiveness of our sins and the righteousness that comes only through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we saw this even last week if you recall of the, if, if the Lord would count iniquity who could stand if you recall that to be prepared for death requires ultimately trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, in His work on the cross, that He died to save sinners, rose again from the dead in victory over sin, that all who believe in Him would not perish under God's wrath and judgment for your sin, but be forgiven and granted eternal life. Ecclesiastes helps us be prepared for that, to receive that for the good news that it is. It reminds us as we continue to live under the sun of where our hope ultimately is and lies. Uh, David Gibson writes this. He says, Ecclesiastes teaches us to live life backward. It encourages us to take the one thing in the future that is certain, our death, and work backward from that point into all the details and decisions and heartaches of our lives and to think about them from the perspective of the end. It is the destination that makes sense of the journey. Many have viewed the primary purpose of the book of Ecclesiastes as as evangelistic. And certainly that is a, a, a significant part of what this book accomplishes. And so as we work backwards from the reality that we will one day die, we can then begin to live this life that we have as God intends. As we look out into eternity for meaning, we can begin to navigate and even be content to live in a world where there is much vexation, where everything is passing, fleeting, insubstantial. You can accept that there will be things beyond your ability to grasp. You can begin to trust the Lord with these matters. Life does not require knowing why everything happens. If you look out into eternity for meaning, you can avoid the folly of placing all your hopes in pleasures or knowledge because they're fleeting and not the substance of life's meaning. carry on you can carry did this die? just dead eh? just gone oh we're back as you look out into eternity for meaning you can carry on even though injustice prevails around you even as persecution comes in this is dead I think it's going. If it goes, I'm just gonna, if you're in a car right now, you might have to jump out at some point. I'm sorry. The batteries are dying. Oh, we have another bike. If I set this here, can anyone hear? Do I have to go right up here? Okay, we're gonna we're gonna swallow this one. All right. As you look out into eternity for meaning, you can carry on even when there is suffering, even when there is injustice. Because again, there's life beyond this, and there is judgment to come. If this was all there is and it was up to you to fix everything, to make sure there is no injustice, if it was up to you to right every wrong, if you were the victim of injustice or persecution or something of that sort, and there was no one there to defend you, there would be nothing but aggravation and frustration and and anger even. And yet we know there is life beyond, and all of this will come before God in His judgment. Looking to eternity for meaning can also help you begin to find a measure of joy in your work, even if you're not changing the world with your job, because ultimately you don't have to. If you're not doing it to find ultimate meaning and satisfaction, then you can find contentment in work, in doing it as a way of trying to honor the Lord, provide for your family, doing the best you can in the vocation that God has given you, what He has called you to do. You can begin to find contentment with the what you do have, ultimately because What you have has been a gift to you from God. And it's a gift to you from God for a limited time. And even if your things do disappear from you, Ecclesiastes is there to help you deal with that pain because it prepares you for this reality by honestly teaching you that this is how life on earth is. And then pointing you beyond this beyond the here and now. This book teaches us and reminds us that we are not God. We are sinners living in a fallen world. And this book really re-enthrones God, points to His majesty and His dominion. He's God, you and I are not. We don't possess control of everything. There is much beyond our understanding, much we cannot control even in our own little spheres that we do have supposedly have control over much of it is still outside of our control time and chance he will say happens to people you can have the world's greatest plan and it can all come apart in an instant this is the nature of life in a fallen sinful world we don't know what tomorrow holds we have no idea, ultimately. And all of this helps to pry our hands from gripping too tightly to this world by helping us see that the thing that you are holding on to or trying to grab hold of is, in fact, wind. You think you've got a hold of something. But it's an illusion because of the nature of life. It could be gone tomorrow. It doesn't help to try to pretend that things are otherwise. So as we grasp that this life truly is a short time of pilgrimage, and as we are prepared to die by living in light of that day trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and his provision for your sins taking the provision God has given for your sins as we place our hope in Christ and in his coming kingdom we can now live this earthly life well we can live it wisely we can avoid some of the common pitfalls in idols. Now, please note, of course, that none of this means that this takes away all of the pain. That's not what Ecclesiastes is saying. That's not what I'm trying to suggest. Loss, losing things, having something good one moment, and then all of a sudden it's, it's gone... This can be incredibly painful, whether it's stuff that we have even, house goes up in flames, or whether it's losing something like a loved one. The book of Ecclesiastes is not going to just make that, oh, okay, and we just get on as if nothing happened. There's still much that will be difficult. This is why I think it's not helpful to say that Ecclesiastes is just sort of, well, that's life without God, but if you have God, then, you know, this pain goes away. Well, it doesn't. Life is still fleeting for you and I. It still comes and goes. We still lose. Again, watching the righteous suffer while the wicked prosper is very disturbing. But this book does help us to navigate these realities. As it will ultimately remind us that our hopes are to be beyond life under the sun. And so we are reminded again to hope in Christ and to hope in His kingdom. You recall the Old Testament saints were looking ahead to that as well. But you remember Hebrews 11? They ultimately desired a heavenly city as well. So I would encourage you to consider things that you are really holding to super tightly as necessities for you. To consider areas or things that you cling to. They might be very good gifts to you. But things that you might think God owes you or you couldn't go on if somehow circumstances changed. Consider these things and embrace that all is vanity. That is, all is like a vapor. And release, release your grip on those things. Entrust those things to the Lord. Trust that the Lord is good. If if you're a believer in Christ, He has promised to work all things for your good. That doesn't mean all things are going to be equally pleasant. he will do as he promises there is rest to be had here to entrusting yourself and all that you have and have been given to the Lord to trust that he knows better than you do and then to receive what he has given you with joy so as, as far as you are able rejoice even today even right now in what the Lord has presently blessed you with today. He is going to return to this throughout Ecclesiastes, the goodness of rejoicing in some of what seems like life's very basic things, uh, your family, uh, work, and food. good as far as you're able to rejoice in those things today because we just don't know what tomorrow holds. And then of course as Peter says, as we rejoice in things today, also set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is very honest with us about what we can expect brutally so Father we're reminded that this is this is life as a result of sin in the world this was not how it was originally with creation but how it is now that it has been cursed by sin and we're reminded that one day all of this utility will end And that this is where we are to place our hope. So I pray that you would help us to be realistic about life in the fallen world. And to truly reckon with the fact that we will die one day. And to find great courage and strength and hope and joy in what the Lord Jesus has done to bring us to you. Father, I pray that we would then be able to live joyfully and trust ourselves to you and truly be freed of worry about tomorrow. Father, turn our eyes from the things that would trouble us and free us that we might entrust all things to you. Give us the power and strength to enjoy the good gifts you've given us even now, even today. Father, bless us as we continue to study through this book and as we continue to worship you together. In Jesus' name, amen.